Hello. Oh, hey, John. How are you? Hi, Dan. What's up? How's how's going over there in Texas land? It's pretty good here. Apparently, more more and more people are sick. So, you know, we opened up and now everyone's sick. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that seems to be the case right now. You're feeling the sick, uh, the sick is coming down, huh? Well, I mean, I knock on wood, I'm all right, but, um, you know, I don't, I try not to, I try not to get anything anyway, so. Yeah, right, right. Um, well, that's too bad. You know, yeah. out here in Seattle, of course, we've had a, uh, we've had a complete overthrow of the, of the local government and the institution of a new, um, you know, people's Republic. So yes, we're not going to have coronavirus as small potatoes compared to what we're doing out here. Yes. I, uh, I, I saw an article. I think I may have sent, let me see. I'm looking at my message. Yes, I did. Um, I sent an article, a medium post to you that I'm sure you're familiar with. I won't go into detail other than to read the title, which is the demands of the collective black voices at free Capitol Hill to the government of Seattle, Washington. And it's a long article talking about uh, free Capitol Hill. And I don't, I don't, I was wondering if this is, is this what you're talking about? That is, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, Chaz, the Capitol Hill autonomous zone. Okay. Is, um, and is so what is, what's going on in the autonomous zone? It sounds like something that would, you would find near Chernobyl. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah, because there was a police Chernobyl in seattle you know all of that is happening on the block where i lived for many years uh, i lived on 11th avenue between pike and pine all of those that police barricade where you saw night after night the the cops and protesters uh clashing um that was 11th and pine so if you walked out the door of my apartment and turned to the right that was the intersection you would see and then on the other side of that intersection one block um, one block further was the Western State Hurricanes band practice space. Uh-huh. And if you stepped out of my apartment and looked across the street, that was the that's the building where the Stranger newspaper is published. There used to be a Value Village right next to it. And then if you turned left and went another block, just just the same block in the, in the left direction, that was where the presidents of the United States practiced. And um, that was my whole universe there. There was an REI there originally. The the venue New Moses is over around the corner, and then uh, the, one block down is the Comet Tavern, where I well, that was my bar that I drank at before I stopped drinking. So okay. that little place there, uh, that what now is considered the heart of Capitol Hill, and what at the time was kind of a a. Um, like a wasteland on Friday nights. Um, that now is at the center of the Capitol Hill autonomous zone. <laughs> and what that, um, I'm sorry to laugh. It's just, it's a funny, no, it's, it's a funny name. It is funny. What happened is the cops, the cops got themselves into a situation where they did what cops do, which is try to suppress uh, the mob try to um, make them very uncomfortable, right? People are protesting and everything that the cops do is designed to make them scared and uncomfortable 
both of which are designed to get them to disperse. Mm -hmm. All the cops want is for you to disperse. They don't want to change your mind. They don't want to convince you that your political beliefs are unfounded. Cops don't make speeches in situations like that. They just want you to disperse. And the only methods they have at their disposal are fear and discomfort. So they tear gas you. And let me tell you, after you have been tear gassed, all you want is to go home. I mean, I'm, really what I'm you want assuming is, that that has happened to you. It happened to me at that very intersection. Oh, man. Um, during the WTO protests, we confronted the cops there night after night. And we got tear gassed and they fired those same bean bags and they showed up. I mean, at, at WTO, they had, they put their tanks way more visibly forward. Same cops, same uniforms, same billy clubs. This is 20 years ago. They fired those same bean bags and the same flashbag, flashbang grenades. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I didn't see any evidence that the technology had changed at all. The difference was during WTO, the WTO conference was only a week long and we were, the initial protests were downtown trying to actually physically impede the delegates from moving from their hotels to the conference center and back to their hotels. You know, it was a, it was a big conference. Delegates had come from all over the world. They were meeting and the city had planned it to be this great, you know, like the, the, ultimate international economic con um, where they had delegates staying in really nice hotels and they were going to be able to, they had these maps published where they were going to waltz from ballroom to ballroom deciding all these, you know, like opening up all this free trade between places. And the, and the, the nature of the protests was that globalization was like uniformly bad for working people. Mm-hmm. And generally you know, was just these decisions were being made by people that we had not elected. You know, Bill Clinton had kind of put us into this world where decisions were being, and you know, some of it is a libertarian argument or, you know, their argument from right and left that, mm-hmm. wait a minute, why are we all of a sudden subject? Our, our workplace rules are subject to an international governing body. And who decided that, you know, at, at what point are we no longer able to enforce like labor laws because this treaty stipulates that you can't, that, that that would be unfair competition to workers in India or, or Japan or China or whatever. There was a lot of, there were a lot of people at WTO. It was, it was one of the, it was like those French milk and butter protests where there are a lot of people with sort of conflicting not conflicting, but a lot of different um, uh, goals in mind, and they all came together and formed like a like a week long coalition of people that normally some of them wouldn't even get along, but we right. all agreed that the WTO was not for us. The difference is that at the end of that week, we successfully disrupted the the conference, and I mean honestly, all that it was an example of one of those things where it's like, couldn't this have just been an email? Like the WTO, (laughs) it's not like it stopped, right? They just went on email. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But at the end of the week, the protests were over because there wasn't anything left to protest. And, and the, and the reason we were protesting at the East precinct is that the cops 
tear gassed us and and brutalized us downtown and then the the protesters after the conference was over for the day mm-hmm. um nothing left downtown to protest so everybody sort of marched on the cops marched up to east precinct and then mm-hmm. they formed their barricade there and that was where the the battles i mean the battle happened all over the city but The difference this time is that there wasn't a conference to protest and it didn't end and no one anticipated at the level of the city how tenacious the protesters would be. It's kind of unprecedented. You know, like the war in Vietnam continued to happen and protests sparked all around the country and around the world and they didn't go away. Those protests uh, you know, the boomers were very tenacious in protesting the war. And it turns out the millenniums are extremely tenacious too. Maybe not, you know, maybe not coincidentally. Yeah. Um, and the, that the, the difference is that generation X <laughs> is almost defined by a lack of tenacity. Generation X in all of our protests, you know, we would, we protests for a protest protested for a while. And then we were like, Oh man, well, good job, everybody. <laughs> Let's get out of here. It's cold. <laughs> anyway. So the cops spent this last, this last two weeks trying to break the spirit of the protesters, tried to make them uncomfortable and scared. Mm hmm. And demoralized, and all it did was piss the protesters off more. And at a certain point, and it probably was not that far into it, the police and the mayor's office and the powers that be all were sitting in a room and saying, "Like, well, now what's our end game here? Like, what if we can't make them uncomfortable and scared enough that they go away? What then? Like, what's our plan?" And there isn't a plan other than stop the protests, break the protests, and then go back to business as usual, or uh, bring the protesters to the table and negotiate some kind of half-assed settlement with them, and that will take the steam out of, you know, it never takes the steam out of the the 10% that are, uh, the 10% of protesters that are super angry and super energized. Mm Mm-hmm. What the mayor's office wants to do is take the steam out of the 50% of the protesters that are just there for the weekend. You know, the, the moms in tennis shoes and the, the Amazon dudes and people that are like, Hey, let's go protest. This is, this is bullshit. But as soon as somebody's like, well, tell you what, from now on, we're going to paint rainbows on the sidewalks. Hmm. And that 50% of the people go, Oh, all right. We really did something today. And cause they don't want to be there. You know? Right, right. But that's not that didn't work here, and partly it was that the tenacity of the protesters was such that they that their demands were not like um, they were not easily mollified by by like an olive branch. The cops didn't really offer much of an olive branch. What happened was the protest turned from the very beginning. It was not against some WTO delegates. It wasn't against the patriarchy. It was literally directed against the cops. So what could the cops do? 
cops can't give you any concession if if your if your stated goal is eliminating the cops. Anyway, the cops didn't have a fallback position. They didn't have they just hadn't thought it all the way through. And they realized as this goes into week three and the center of Capitol Hill is just straight up shut down because there's a, there's a never ending supply of people surrounding the police station. Like what happened was the cops could not step back from those barricades because I want you to picture them taking those barricades down, going into the police station taking their helmets off, putting on their regular uniforms and trying to do business while all those protesters are picketing the police station. Right. You know, like crowding around outside, banging trash can lids while they're in there trying to write traffic tickets and, and bus shoplifters or whatever it is that cops do. Investigate crimes. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do that. And they couldn't chase the protesters away. So some genius came up with the idea that they were going to abandon the East Precinct. And there was a lot of conspiracy happening at the t- uh, that night, suggesting that what their plan was was to let the protesters burn the East Precinct. And that's super Machiavellian, but... It is true that if that had happened, the police would have had no trouble doubling their budget for riot gear the following year. Like no, none of the middle class people in the Seattle suburbs are going to let a bunch of hippies burn the police station down. You know, it would just it would have turned it would have made it would have made the police have this um, you know their own self images that they're victims here. And it would have really validated that we're the victims Mm -hmm. and we're the, and also we're the only thing that stand between the, this crazed mob and you homeowner, middle-class Seattle homeowner. So they stepped away from the East precinct, but it didn't burn down and now they can't go back. And, and a very interesting thing happened. Stop me if I'm boring you. No, this is interesting for me. Just like during the WTO, the protests in Seattle in particular, um, what, uh, the people there on the barricades represented a coalition of different groups. These protests around the death of George Floyd started very very definitely as a black lives matter protest. Right. The, the, the point of this in Minneapolis and then as it spread around the country, the point of it was that this was another death of a black man at the hands of a police department. It was caught on videotape. It was egregious and it was the kind of egregious that, that even people up to this point who every one of these egregious deaths could have plausibly said, well, why was that guy 
why was why if that guy didn't want to die at the hands of a police chokehold, he shouldn't have been stealing ten cent cigarettes, or he shouldn't have been wearing a hoodie, or he shouldn't have been out at night, or whatever. All those people with the he shouldn't have it was his, you know the people that are apologists for police violence that want it to be, um, that want it to be a, a problem of black people not behaving well. Mm-hmm. Even a big slice of those people could not deny that this guy had his knee on his neck for nine minutes. Right. There's just no version of it where that was not just, it's not even a question of appropriate to the crime. Like if George Floyd had been accused of, of murdering his wife to, to kneel on his neck for nine minutes is to kill a man. Right. There's not, it's not a, that's just not debatable. But so the protest started as a black lives matter protest. And as it expanded out and went into, you know, week two, what started to happen was I think a thing that's very familiar to black people and black protesters and, you know, black intellectuals, which is that the movement started to attract a lot of allies who in fact had their own agenda or own agendas that are not really, that really don't have anything to do with black lives matter. Those agendas of the other groups are their own and those groups are are sympathetic to black lives matter Mm -hmm. they are allies of they want to make a coalition with but in fact their goals are different if you think of black lives matter which is not an organized group but it's a it's a philosophy it's a a movement around an idea and if you think of antifa Mm-hmm. which again is not an organized group so much as it is an, a, a, an organization around an idea. And then you think of the democratic socialists, which is a political party. And if you think about the other, <clears throat> the other socialist groups that aren't, you know, the, the socialist factions that think that the democratic socialist party is, is too mainstream you know, they're political parties and those groups, we, we, we come to see them in a situation like this as being, uh, if not synonymous with one another, then, you know, all pursuing a, a common cause, but you know, they don't have a common cause. Like the goals of black lives matter. If you can take that whole, if you can take that philosophy and kind of Put it, put it together. Imagine that it had a, um, imagine that it had a five point plan or a set of demands. Like Black Lives Matter is not trying to start a socialist revolution. The premise of that of that um, relationship, from the socialists' perspective is that if there's a socialist revolution, then black lives will be, will matter. And we're just going to hope that you guys take it on faith that the socialist revolution is going to produce conditions in which black lives matter. And that makes, uh, that, that seems 
super obvious to socialists, right? And so they feel this common cause because because they do believe Black Lives Matter, and they want to um, they want to be active in that space. Um, but they also want to harness the power of the of Black Lives Matter anger. They want to harness that power to to try to accomplish their own goals. And honestly, from the perspective of someone whose primary political concern is Black Lives Matter, if they could accomplish those goals within a capitalist system, they Mm -hmm. absolutely would. In fact, that's kind of the point to a certain extent. Like, more opportunity for black people in America, less political violence, less estrangement, less, you know, institutionalized racism, more, you know, economic opportunity that, but, but black lives matter doesn't say let the workers gain control over the means of production, Mm -hmm. you know, like if so, and, and likewise, the socialist socialist revolution from the perspective of the socialists, of course it's going to make a world where black lives are, uh, where, where police violence is eliminated, where institutional racism is rooted out. You know, they see all that as a, as a fait accompli once the socialist revolution happens. But if it were, but the primary goal is the socialist revolution. It's not, you know, like black people are going to get their justice later after the revolution. First, we get the revolution. Then we'll, then the black people will get justice. Like everyone else will get justice. Mm -hmm. Like poor whites will get justice. Like, Everyone, you know, the, the, the premise of the socialist revolution is that everyone's justice is coming. And so these are in a way, strange bedfellows and, and what happens. And I think what black intellectuals see a lot is that the anger, the, the, the momentum of their movement, a bunch of people join it, a bunch of white people join it in the form of the socialists and protesters of other things, environmentalists and, um, you know, like liberal intellectuals, but then the, but then the, the demands of the movement become much more diffuse. They, they get diluted by not diluted, but diluted by the introduction of all these other, um, competing, demands or, um, or other others. And so what you have on Capitol Hill autonomous zone right now is what started out as a, as a protest about black uh, police brutality against black Americans became a protest about police brutality, became a protest about police control, right? became a protest against police as agents of capitalism, agents of enforcing the inequality, the intrinsic, like, um, 
uh, inequity of capitalism and then became a protest against the police state. And so now on Capitol Hill, you have a neighborhood where the police got out of there because they, because there wasn't a good outcome for them. And you, and you realize, well, black lives matter does not have a political apparatus that is, that was interested in taking over the administration of a city, you know? Yeah. Like black lives matter is not saying. Right. Like that was the goal. The goal you're saying the goal was not for them to necessarily do what's happening right now. What, what the, the idea of defunding the police is a tremendous idea. And it's one that there's been a lot of writing about. There's a lot of theory about it. There's a lot of experience at it. It's a tremendous policy uh, position. It's there's with the right amount of momentum behind it. It's not about dissolving the police. It's just, if you look at the budget, a typical city budget, the amount of money that the city puts into daycare and mental health and um, food stamps and whatever else. And then the budget that the, the cops get to buy tanks and helicopters and machine right, guns. I saw some of the things about the tanks. I mean, it's ludicrous. The amount of money that the police get relative to what their job should be, which is, which is like community policing, walking around, keeping people from breaking windows, you know, re- responding when somebody's cat gets stuck in a tree. Mm-hmm. Like the Seattle Police Department should not be in a position to repel an invasion or to fight a five-day-long battle against insurgents. You know, it's just not what police are there for. And and there and and so they have all that equipment. They're going to find a. They're going to they're going to use it, right? The cops in Seattle used to drive blue and white cars. And as time went on, those cars got less blue, a lot less white, more and more black until now all Seattle cop cars are jet black with tinted black windows and black rims and, you know, like murdered out. And that's just happened in the last 20 years. And it's just, it's just like a, it's the, it's the face of the cops thinking of themselves as an elite unit of counterinsurgents, you know, like terrorist stoppers instead of like cops, like, you know, walking down the street, stopping in storefronts and going like, Hey there, Jim, how's it going today? Like cops, like regular, just part of the community, people that are just doing, you know, like keeping people from littering. Anyway, the Capitol Hill autonomous zone has zero to do with black lives, zero to do with black lives mattering. And if if you read their signs, if you read their manifestos, you know, they're very careful to continue to use language of black lives matter because they are savvy and recognize that if they, you know, if, if, if they, if they publicly forget to mention that this is all, that this all originated in this kind of, you know, like in a, in a protest about a thing, like it's not just George Floyd, but it's about a thing like a, a national calamity. 
So what you've got now is anarchists and communists who are kids and who have roped off Central Capitol Hill and declared it an independent nation. And it's wonderful. I mean, I think that it is wonderful. Um, there, is, there's like free vegan tortas and you can, I'm sure you can go to people have set up tables where you can buy macrame plant holders and you can get, you can buy a copy of the socialist worker. And I mean, I I'm, I'm headed down there today. I really, I want to walk around and see, but it's going to, you know, for a while it's going to be like Christiana in, in Copenhagen. Like it could be, it even could for, for even could last that it be a kind of red light district or free zone. Hmm. There's a neighborhood in Seattle called Fremont. And in the 1970s, Fremont, or maybe the early eighties, Fremont declared itself a nuclear free zone. Hmm. Now there, no one was going to build any nuclear weapons in Fremont, but they did it as a, you know, a political statement, an act of resistance. Fremont is a nuclear free zone. You can't bring any nukes into Fremont. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was surprising. It, now it sounds totally ludicrous, but it was surprisingly, uh, it seemed like an act of agitation at the time. Uh, it wasn't a punchline. It was like, it was an art statement and there is a ship canal through Fremont and it is plausible that the Navy at some point brought a ship through there that had a nuke in it and even though the town of Fremont was powerless to stop the Navy from doing that you know it was a it was a kind of I don't know it was it, it felt clever and the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone is maybe going to be that for this summer. Who knows? Who knows how long it will last? But the point is that the people there at, in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone are not capable of administering that neighborhood, right? They're not right. going to they're not going to organize garbage collection. They're not going to um, fix the water pipe when it breaks. They're not going to um, they, they, they can't run a city. They're counting on the city continuing to exist and continuing to run. What they want to do is control the streets. And it's not going to, it's probably not going to hurt anything. You know, a, a group of, a group of, of like impassioned people like that can do a good job of, of, um, creating a, a tone on the streets where people help each other and where there's not, um, there's not, uh, like mob rule. I don't know what they're going to do the first time a group of, of five wilding teenagers come in there from the <laughs> suburbs and start running through, uh, like tagging the storefronts and stuff. Right. Um, I don't know what they'll do. That'll be, that's, one of the interesting experiments about this kind of thing. I mean, Christiana, what it ended up was that the, the whole neighborhood was, was buried under 50 layers of tags. Right. 
but the the interesting thing to me when, when I was on the Seattle Music Commission, we had a a meeting one time where the you know public came to give comments, and uh, there were a couple of like late middle aged black ladies who had come you know in their uh, they had, they had dressed well to come present in front of the city commission Mm -hmm. and that wasn't always the case you know people would come give a little speech in front of the commission and you know and they obviously you know they intentionally were dressed down because they weren't going to show respect to people at the city Hmm. but most people that came to give presentations like you could just see in their in their dress and their manner that they had come correct, they had come downtown. They were speaking to a city board, and this right. was, you know, they were paying respect. And these ladies had had clearly like were showing that kind of respect. But the but the the main lady got up and said, and it was a speech that was not really. It's unclear why she decided that the Seattle Music Commission was where she was going to give this speech, and she may have given it other places too. Because we weren't, we didn't have any authority or power to, to act on any of the things that she said. Mm-hmm. But what she said was, black people achieved a lot during the civil rights movement. But what happened in the aftermath was that the idea of black people got turned into the idea of minorities and minorities that included everybody, Asians, Mexicans, people from India, native Americans. Now that now there's, there's not black people anymore. There's minorities And what that did was it took all of the power that we had accrued during this, during during the civil rights movement, and it, it took it away from us. Now you can hire an Asian person and that qualifies that, that fulfills your quota for a minority. But when that legislation was passed, we weren't talking about minorities. We were talking about black people. And then you know, we, then we would achieve another victory for black people, but then it would, but then it got turned into diversity. And what diversity means is that you want some from column A and some from column B. But when we passed that legislation, when we fought for that, for those rights, it was for black people because up until that point, you know, Asian people have their own face, their own discrimination. Mexican people face their own discrimination Gay people face their own discrimination. Those are legitimate discriminations and 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 authentic and their own, but it's not the same as the discrimination faced by black people. And so, when every time we try to address directly discrimination against black people specifically, what ends up happening is that that then gets applied to this general category of everyone that isn't white. And all that does from the perspective of us, 
black activists is once again, like steal our accomplishment and spread it around a bunch of people that weren't fighting for it and that aren't suffering as badly as we are. And we're sitting here in this, you know, this meeting while she's giving this speech. And at one level, you know, it's, it's politically incorrect, but she's a veteran. You can tell that she's been in the trenches Mm -hmm. and it was fascinating to hear her perspective, which was, you know, like a lot of, like a lot of perspectives that are very focused. Um, she was, she didn't really want to hear about the problems that Asian people have in the workplace. She felt like, you know, like, yeah, you guys have problems. Like get, get a, uh, an, a group of activists together and fight for your rights. But when we were fighting for our rights, we weren't, you know, when you look at a situation and you say there should be more black people working here, like hiring a bunch of Asian people doesn't solve that problem. And I've always thought about her ever since from the, uh, just keeping in mind the way that protests on behalf of African Americans and specifically protests where African Americans stand up and fight for their own rights, how time and again, the broader the coalition that jumps on board in the end, kind of the less the black people get out of it because everybody gets a piece of it once they're in there, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody jumps in and says, yeah. And also for us, while we're at it, we're also mad. Um, and honestly, the environmental movement and black lives matter are not incompatible with each other. I, I also believe that the future world will have, um, will have less discrimination and also less pollution. I'm not as convinced as some that the socialist revolution is the thing that's going to come in and, and, um, solve everybody's problems once we accomplish it, you know, in the same way that I'm not convinced that the Capitol Hill autonomous zone is going to do a very good job of a garbage collection. Right. But so we're in, you know, we're in this, we're in this middle zone now where the tenacity is the thing that makes me, that, that impresses me the most. You know, there was, there was a moment a couple of weeks ago where I said on Twitter that, you know, up until this point I had been, I had been pretty resolutely in the camp that punching Nazis was a bad plan. Right. And, and that was a, um, yeah, I saw you tweet about that. Maybe it's not bad anymore or something. Well, no, I mean, that was a shorthand for saying that my, you know, my overall strategy 
which was to pursue politics by nonviolent means, to believe that you're negotiating with people that are similarly of good faith, mm-hmm. that the American legal system is um, is flexible by design, and ultimately the real heroes of all of these fights end up being young lawyers who work 80-hour weeks to file injunctions. Like, I believe, and it's not a question of work within the system or work outside the system. It's a question of feeling like, well, it's a strategy question. And when I when I said a couple of weeks ago, like, well, I no longer am against punching Nazis. And I no longer believe that the people on the other side are negotiating in goodwill. So this is a time to fight the cops. I got a strange number of like weirdly condescending, gloating tweets from people who are obviously fans and who obviously are millennials. Mm-hmm. The tone of which was that I had changed my mind or that, um, you know, that I had finally gotten on board or something, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, that I had finally seen the wisdom of their ways and abandoned my boomer, uh, reticence. And I think it's important it's important for me to make a clear distinction. Like my beliefs have not changed. And by that, I mean that when I was, when I was espousing nonviolence and espousing, um, like an, uh, like an understanding of how lasting change gets built and maintained. It was not that I like had that I was in love with the cops or had a fear of violence or wasn't prepared to take it to the end zone or did wasn't ready for the system to collapse. It was, it was that that was, that was bad strategy and it's bad strategy. Now it's just that now there, I mean, there are times, there are moments where you have to hit the anvil with a hammer. And that's always been true. And this is one of those moments. This is a moment where you tear the cops apart. This is a moment where the Capitol Hill autonomous zone <laughs> exists for three to seven months or, how, or, or however long. Maybe seven years. Maybe three more days. I don't know. I support it, though. I don't support it because I think it's the future. I don't think that that's what's going to happen in cities around the world, that the, that Antifa is going to run the government, but I support it because it's a good strategy right now to move the, the crate of the crate of goods and services, the crate of plans to pick it up and move it further down the street and put it down again somewhere closer to where you want it to be. 
and the, you know the idea that that something that the that the murder of George Floyd somehow uh, the scales fell from my eyes and all of a sudden I I believed in rioting or believed in punching Nazis or cops or whatever that and before I didn't it's just such a it's such a bad read because my convictions are exactly the same I just recognize at least I hope to recognize that there are times to punch Nazis and there are times to not punch Nazis. And I didn't think it was the time to punch them then. And now I recognize this is a good time for punching Nazis, but it's not like it doesn't represent that. I suddenly saw the wisdom of the, of free healthcare. Like I, I get it. I got the wisdom of free healthcare. It's not that complicated. It's just, how do you do it, right? How do you get there? How do you move that crate down the street? You don't just stand in the street punching Nazis and screaming free healthcare and accomplish it. Because right now, I mean, the Democratic Party leaders put on Kunta Kinte cloth. And I don't know, even I, I didn't read deeply enough into that article to even know what they were doing. But they, you know, like... They're out there trying to do that. Joe Biden has got his sunglasses on. Like the world <laughs> is still moving whether there's a Capitol Hill autonomous zone or not. Right. And, you know, this is a time to punch Nazis. There will come a day when it's not time to punch Nazis anymore. And punching Nazis is not in and of itself an ideology. So that weird tone that um, that the attitude, you know, the kind of Bernie bro attitudes of two years ago have been vindicated in all of this is just something that, you know, the, the, maybe the, re, maybe the full reflection and accounting won't happen until two years from now when people who have lived through this will be able to see it as part of a continuum. There was the world as it was in 2014, there was the world as it was in 2018. There was the world in 2020. And then there's the world in 2024. And it's not until you see all of them laid out together that you see the, you see how all those pieces and parts work together and right. you find out, you find out where you land because Capitol Hill autonomous zone and the defunding of the Minneapolis police department are not the end. That's not where we land. This is all where we are. And you just hope that where you land is further up the street than where you started. And it does, and it's not necessarily so. The cops can still push back harder. You know, the, the cops didn't go to sleep. They're not, I mean, they're somewhere right now super pissed, humiliated, licking their wounds and cleaning their rifles. You know, bad things can still happen. So I'm sitting here in Seattle and excited, excited that, that we're living through another period of tenacious action because it's, because good things do come as a result of this kind of moment. 
I don't think what's happened right now has vindicated anybody, and I'm not sure what's I'm not sure where we're going to land. It's possible that Capitol Hill, I got a text this morning from a friend that's like, what happens if Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone becomes a hotbed of COVID-19? I'm like, what happens? Like, I hope, I hope that's not what happens. I hope that the mega churches of, of, um, (laughs) not, not the area around Austin, no, but you know, I hope the climate change denying anti-gay megachurches of the of the deep south are the ones that become coronavirus hotbeds. If we have to pick one place, and not my not my beloved revolutionary enclave of Chaz. <laughs> <laughs>